0: Hello there and welcome to episode 82 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. We are back. Uh, it's just me at the moment. I do have a co-host on this interview. Uh, it's Mr. Mr. Mark Satir, as always. But in this intro, I'm alone because we are idiots and forgot to record the intro and the outro. So uh, the interview's already happened. It's with uh, the wonderful Sarah Jane's. We'll get to her in a minute. So we've been away for a little while, uh, since February. And there's a there's a reason behind that. We kind of wanted to... Well, A, I injured myself in Las Vegas, of all places, as you can... You know, I wish what happened is, you know, in Vegas, stayed in Vegas, but it didn't in this case. I brought a broken foot back with me. But anyway, yeah, so we, there was that. And also, I, I was kind of a bit... We were trying to chase the kind of new release dragon, as it were. So I, I was always trying to book shows with, you know, books that had just come out. It, basically, you you'd probably noticed there were gaps, and that's usually when... <laughs> There was just no books that we were interested in that had come out. So what we've decided to do is stop chasing new books all the time. We're still going to cover new stuff, don't worry, but we're actually going to do more episodes now with, you know, authors or subjects that we feel warrant an episode. It doesn't have to be a brand new release. It could be an older uh, topic and, uh, you know, we can do our thing on it. I'd like to do a show on the Golden Dawn, for example, or uh, William Cooper, the conspiracy theorist, or, you know, there's so many subjects we could cover that, just aren't being covered in new books so that's moving forward what we're going to do obviously if a new book comes out we're going to go yeah okay great let's get that guy in but no, it's for, um, to you know, to kind of keep it fun for us as well. We want to cover stuff that we're genuinely interested in. And one way we're thinking of doing that is by starting to do episodes that don't have a guest, but it's myself and Mark or myself and US's Black or all three of us discussing a topic, you know, where we go away, we research a topic and we come in and record a, you know, a nice long episode for you guys talking about a, an interesting subject you might not have thought of or, or and you might not have heard of or one you've heard of, but you are interested in what we have. Have to say about it you know because we come from our own angles as we all do but yeah so that's that's the plan moving forward we are back i've overbooked the show now I've, <laughs> in my usual style i'll go away for a, a while and then come back with too many guests so i'm gonna be busy for the next few weeks but anyway enough of that waffling we're back So coming up this week, we have uh, Sarah Jane's. Sarah has just written a new book called Initiation into Dream Mysteries. It's a returning guest. I actually missed the interview with her last time. It was Josh who interviewed her. You know, I was quite excited to... Uh, finally talk to her especially she only lives down the road from us uh she lives in hastings which is you know 45 minute drive from where i live in brighton yeah so she's a a local lady she's a dream expert and her new book is a great resource if you're interested especially in like the history of ritualized dreaming and you know how dreams have been used magically uh she's she's really your kind of go-to source these days uh so let's go into that now and it'll be myself and mark Satir. Hello, Sarah-Janes. Good to have you back on the show. For those that didn't hear the first time you were on, could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please?
1: Sure. Well, um, a brief biography. I've kind of done every single job conceivable um, you know, in in my youth. More recently, I've kind of decided just to concentrate on dream research and retreats and writing. But um, I used to work in the TV and film industry and I also worked uh, in the music industry promoting mostly um, psychedelic American bands. And I'm currently curating a symposium that explores all aspects of dreaming in Athens at the end of October. So I've just written um, a book called Initiation into Dream Mysteries, and this is about the history and culture of the dream in the Western esoteric tradition. And it kind of looks at how dreaming was used as a form of magic and medicine. And I have always been a lucid dreamer. I've always been really into dreams. Ever since I was a toddler, I've had lucid dreams and interesting dreams. So I've been kind of dream obsessed my whole life. And even as a child, I'd like to find whatever books I could find about dreaming. And I started my own lecture club in Hastings, met I, I had a child and um when I was when Indy was a baby, I decided that I didn't want to do gigs anymore. They were like late nights, staying up really late. I didn't want that kind of lifestyle. So I started to do lecture, a lecture club instead. And I did contemplate going back to, or I have never been to university. So I contemplated going to university and I thought I might study something like anthropology or neuroscience. And so I started to bunk into lectures at the University of Sussex and realized kind of quite quickly that I probably didn't want to go back to university, but I did like lectures. So I used to ask lecturers to come and talk at a friend's house and then give them whatever money I could raise from my friends coming. So I think Anil Seth might have been the first person that I put on. He's a um, professor of neuroscience at the University of Sussex, and he is the co-director of the Sackler Center for Consciousness Studies. So I started off with a lot of neuroscience lectures and psychedelic drugs and uh, ancient culture and history. And then during lockdown, I think I kind of came to the conclusion that the thing that most excites me is ancient culture and philosophy. And so I decided to move into almost exclusively ancient culture. And because the Egyptology gigs have always, always sold the best, um, I changed the Explorers Club to be Explorers Egyptology, and I interviewed mostly Egyptologists and started to learn hieroglyphs as well. So mm. that's it in a nutshell. I mean, yeah, there's been a lot of weird rabbit holes and and side projects over the years.
0: <laughs> I didn't know you worked in film and TV. What did you What did you do there?
1: Yeah, well, I went to drama school. Actually, I went to the Brit School, right. and I always wanted to be a film director. Actually, because of because of dreams, because my dreams were so weird. Um, and I noticed you've got David Lynch on the back there. I love Twin Peaks. I loved any sort of film or TV that was like a dream-like. I love um, Alexandra Dorofsky and things like this. So I always wanted to be a dream film director, and my sort of ambition as a child was to invent a machine that could record my dreams so I could basically watch those as films. And uh, so I started off in drama school. I went to the Brit School in South London, and then... I got a job working as a runner and I just had sort of, not very exciting jobs in the TV and film industry. Although I was very cocky when I was like a teenager, I left school quite young. And I remember going into my boss's office and saying that I wanted six grand to start a TV production company. And he said that he'd give me two grand, but then we pretty much just spent it on going out, having nice dinners and um, (laughs) going on holiday and whatnot. (laughs) I mean, we did have an idea we were gonna make this sitcom. We had a lot of meetings and, I mean, we were just sort of playing at being, like, grown-up TV makers, basically. I was only 18 at the time.
0: TV TV executives. (laughs) But, yeah. Okay, so tell us a bit about the book. How did the book come about? Um, Obviously, it's on inner traditions, so we're um, always very grateful to. They're very good at sending us stuff, which is great. So they sent us a couple of copies of your book. Um, So how did it come about? Like, What was the process
1: there? Well, I've been um, researching... Uh, ancient dream culture, especially in Greece and Egypt and Mesopotamia for more than 10 years now. And um, I started to give talks about ancient dream culture and lucid dreaming and sort of ancient techniques. And I became co-host with Anthony Peake, my friend and author who um, has a show called Consciousness Hour. And sometimes during lockdown, especially we're doing quite a lot of shows, we're doing about one a week. And one of our guests was uh, Richard Grossinger, who is an editor at Inner Traditions. And I told him about my idea for a book and he was up for it. So I sent off a kind of um, a pitch and got a publishing deal with them.
0: Uh, oh, I mute myself. That would help. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's good. It's come out, you know, very well. It's uh, And, you know, I've, I've seen it crop up a lot over the Internet. So it's obviously, it's obviously selling copies, which is a, a good thing obviously so um but yeah let's uh let's just dive into some of the sort of main topics of the of the book and one that really grabbed me early on was this idea of dream incubation i was wondering if you could talk to us about the kind of what dream what is it and kind of you know how it's been used and is it being used in the modern day etc
1: dream incubation is essentially like any practice that um, is designed to elicit a desired dream. So, in in the term in terms of ancient dream incubation and the sort of classical incubation that you see in the Greco Roman period or in the Hellenic um, area with the sanctuaries dedicated to the dream healer goddess Asclepius, it would involve. Uh, a variety of activities, usually fasting, purging of some sort, an emotional catharsis, purification, ritual bathing, this kind of thing. And the, I've just actually recently come back from the sanctuary of Asclepius Epidavros in Greece, just south of Athens. And so the idea there was that Asclepius was essentially a chthonic deity. He had a celestial aspect. He's associated with the constellation Ophiacus, the serpent bearer. <laughs> but this chthonic element, this chthonic aspect of him was really important. So this whole sanctuary uh, functioned around the Thymele, which was thought to be his chthonic throne, his chthonic seat. And there was this idea that because he was such a fantastic healer and he was able to even bring people back from the dead, that he was um, in danger of um, taking on the role of the gods. And so he was punished, he was killed by Zeus, but he was after his father Apollo, like pleaded for Zeus to bring him back to life. He let Asclepius live, but he had to dwell in the underworld. So there's a, a beautiful circular um, structure at Epidavros called the Thymele, which is um, a circular altar building. And underneath the floor of that, there was these almost like a labyrinth, three concentric rings, a kind of winding path. And it's thought that that was uh, the place where Asclepius dwelled. So in ancient Greek medicine, sleep was considered to be the brother of death Mm. and sleep served as a kind of pseudo death. And so there's this idea that you could die in the underworld and meet Asclepius in the dreams because Hades and the dream world are kind of associated as well. And then your sick self would die in the underworld and your healthy self could be reborn and emerge anew and, and carry on um, your life.
2: Yeah, and, and uh, those are uh, the three sons, aren't they? Uh, Hades' three sons are Thantos, Morpheus and Hypos, aren't they? So so death, yeah. sleep and dreaming mm. are all like closely related. And then there's yeah, awesome, awesome. almost intimations in that, that legend of uh, the god of healing dwelling in the underworld. Almost like uh, intimations of like, well... You have to go into the young, young conscious or the deeper self. Mm-hmm. It's almost like it's almost like a suggestion of that, isn't there?
1: Well, these sanctuaries functioned for about two thousand years, and there's evidence for about four hundred of them around the ancient world as well. So they were obviously doing something right. And as they evolved over that two thousand year period, they went from most of the cures being procured by magical means and these these incubation rituals to more kind of traditional surgical and medical practices and medicine. But um, Asclepius was always viewed as the superior primary healer. So the, the optimum cure would be receiving a divine dream. And it's interesting to me, I find it fascinating that a lot of the Yamata, the sort of testimonies of people that visited the sanctuaries say that Asclepius essentially spontaneously healed them in a dream they went to sleep ill they woke up completely cured so you know i do think that there's an aspect of faith healing and the placebo effect going on here where people believe so much that these dream events are real that their body's actually biophysically responding as if they are really receiving a healing and and so i think that if that was um if that was somehow actualized and managed in sleep temples, then they're way ahead of us in terms of, you know, what things can be utilized for healing. I mean, I find it really interesting in medicine these days that people write off the placebo effect as it doesn't mean anything. It's like meaningless. When you think actually the placebo effect is the most amazing, um, amazing thing about healing imaginable that you can heal just because you believe that you're you're being given a cure like that should be utilized in some way
2: yeah and it can also inhibit medication so you know the opposite you know it can actually it's the Nasibo, is it that is that what I'm yeah, you have the
1: nasibo effect. So, so yeah. So, you know,
2: you can be you, prescribed medication, but if you've got a conviction it's not gonna work, it it won't do what it's supposed to do. So yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. I remember there was a very famous story there was a guy from that went had cancer, he went to Lord's, which is the you know, the holy water place and um doused himself in the water and um started to miraculously recover in the in the uh, hospital until he had a conversation with a friend who was who didn't believe in this lord's healing and put doubt into his mind and immediately his cancer reappeared and it's a, and wow. so he had this like insane placebo effect from you know this belief in um this I don't really know the story of lords but um yeah uh, some well, kind of I know the war Another episode in it's right yeah probably <laughs> But I think, yeah. Well,
1: the, isn't there an appearance of the Virgin Marys associated with yeah, lords? Yeah. I think, like a miraculous. Well, appearance. What, what's intriguing appearance.
2: about it is that uh, the the girl who had this vision she doesn't refer she doesn't refer to it as the Virgin Mary. She says, "I saw a little woman, and that she yeah. drew drew a picture of it." And in that area of France, that that phrase is more related oh. to like the the fairies or the fae and it was actually the local priest uh, who said oh well uh, you know oh no it's the virgin mary it was you know it's interesting it, it was sort of attached to it. and there was also yeah. um the girl said there's a there's a there's a spring here it's it's dry it's you no know, it's hidden it's dried up and 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 actually there was when they dug it actually they found the spring so mm. it, it, so so maybe it very i don't know but it's like it suggested likely that it was an older
0: Healing center, you
2: know.
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, um, yeah, there you go. Bit of a side, side topic, yeah. We're going off <laughs> <in> a bit <laughs> yeah. of a thing.
1: As- Asclepius was a, a serious rival for Jesus, it's why he was, uh, kind of tried to be tried, to, they tried to obliterate him from the record, or they absorbed the dream healing rituals from the cults and just moved them into the churches. So, a lot of the churches and the early basilicas that are built on sites of uh, the dream healing sanctuaries, um. Become known for centres for miraculous healing because, you know, I always sort of describe Asclepius is as sort of like a Jesus, Stroke Wim Hof type figure. He's like a big advocate of cold water bathing, and he's like a kindly miraculous healer.
2: Yeah, Asky Yeah, they're, they're, and there's similarities in these in these mythos, isn't there? And these, like, Definitely, yeah. you know, they're quite they're quite similar to the the, um, the Christian narrative as well. Uh, sort of and,
1: and the egyptian narrative with osiris and isis yeah. as well this you know this chthonic, sacrificed god uh, dwelling in the underworld and miraculously healing and curing people
2: yeah and intriguingly, uh, the, the the you know, you know richard dad the famous victorian um uh, painter ah. who lived in uh, bedlam he uh, he 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 had that he he drew he had this notion of uh, the god of healing uh, being related to to the Christian narrative, and actually drew painted a picture of the the birth of uh, As- Asclepius, and uh, you know, and he makes that connection with uh, Christianity mm. with Jesus, which wasn't yeah. yeah I
1: think there's a strong connection there between Jesus and Asclepius. Yeah, yeah. I think actually they they um, modelled Jesus after Asclepius. That was the kind of face and representation that they. They kind of got the idea from and
2: the, and the from staff with the serpent. I mean that, that that that's that's in the the Hebrew Testament, yeah. isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. You know that's a very ancient. You know that's an interesting archetype in itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, I mean, dream incubation was interesting, but the sort of next thing that really took my attention was where you talk about star knowledge in the book. Mm-hmm. Um Could you talk uh, talk to that a bit? Like, why is like knowledge of the stars so important uh, for dreams in particular?
1: Well it comes, it comes down really to this idea that certainly in the ancient near East in Mesopotamia, you get this, um, very strong narrative that the stars and planets are, are gods and goddesses. Like they are just personified divine beings. And, you know, I've thought a lot about this. I love this idea. There's this Sumerian term, Shittir Shameh, uh, which means the writing of heaven. And that describes that constellations are actually seen as texts that can be read. So if you can read the stars, then you can work out the future. And if you look at, um, Ancient star lore, in terms of Aboriginal knowledge, like they have an incredible amount of knowledge about the stars um, that they can see, and they all relate to seasons for hunting, all kinds of like practical land management and um, survival skills can be can be gleaned from the stars. There's a there's a book there's a book by an anthropologist Charles Mountfield um, who wrote who studied with the aboriginals in the western desert i think and they said that he said that they have um, a story for every star down to the fourth magnitude they just know they can read the stars they can read the heavens which is you know i think we forget just how much we're impacted by the amount of light pollution that we have these days and the stars would just obviously been perceived as being this kind of like overwhelming, powerful force that was over us all the time and would have been observed generation after generation as well. So there was this knowledge that these were imperishable, immortal beings that had this tremendous power and influence and longevity. Um, and then there are these sort of astral magic techniques written about um in all of the texts in in sumerian and babylonian texts and um, the Assyriologist erica rayner described this technique for healing called astral irradiation where you would lie a patient or maybe a charm or an amulet and even herbs underneath particular constellations at certain times of the day and the idea was that you would absorb the heavenly radiance from the gods and that's one way that you could heal and then before the kind of more exact sciences of astronomy and astrology came into play, there was this idea of celestial omina, which was just close observations made of the stars and the movements of the planets and uh, relating these things to things that would happen on Earth. And, um, the, the the celestial omina and dream diviner in dream oracles in particular became associated together because obviously dreams happen at nighttime usually and they happen because the stars are visible so that it's when the gods and the goddesses are visible and they have more influence over human beings so I think there's a, there's that relationship there so gods were seen to um, send dreams to mortals, they could actually send a dream. And there's an interesting idea in especially ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt, and then into Greece as well, that uh, a dream could be a personified spirit, which is something really interesting to contemplate, because it's not something we genuine we generally think these days, this idea that Certainly in the case of nightmares, and and there's a lot of descriptions of nightmares that sound a lot like sleep paralysis in ancient Egyptian dream texts, that a dream could have some sort of volition of its own and overpower you. And there are descriptions of dreams um, and sort of dream demons that fall on men at night when they're sleeping. So there's all these kind of... um, apotropaic techniques for getting rid of dream demons. Like you would make, you would have a variety of different plaques to ward off near Eastern um, dream demons like Lilith, for example, or Lamashtu. And then in Egypt, people made these tiny little clay rearing cobras that would scare off any demons that were coming for them in the night. So, you know, the stars are vitally important and I think we would do well to turn off our lights every now and again and, and, Recognize that we exist in space because I think that we underestimate um, the power of the universe, and some people are scared to think that they live in a universe. And I think it's an accident. I don't think it's any kind of conspiracy, but we've just diminished the power of of the stars and the heavens so much. And I think that if we if we actively sought out these like Mm. vast stellar vistas, we would improve the mental and emotional well-being of the populations, I think.
0: Mm. Yeah, Yeah. Um, so what, this is something I was gonna ask, I'm not sure if you, I can't remember if you mentioned it in the book, when were dreams sort of first mentioned as a kind of magical tool? Like what's the kind of earliest record you can think of?
1: Just forever just forever. And I think it's because of this relationship to death, because, you know, I read this really interesting article from um, an Israeli archeologist, and she said something like she was she was investigating really, really early human remains in a cave in Israel. And she said, you know, you have to be aware that ancient people may not have viewed biological death in the same way that we do. And that in and of itself is, is an amazing thing to think about. And the fact that dreams and death were so closely associated that perhaps you know, I mean, one thing that's amazing about dreams to this day is the fact that you can um, you can meet dead people in your dreams, and you can have really meaningful interactions with them. And I think for ancient people, that would have been very strong evidence that when you died, you go to some other place that's only accessible via dreams. So dreaming has always been considered a way to contact dead people. And I would say some of the really early evidence, for me at least, I don't know how many people would agree with it, is. If you look at a site like Chattel Hoyek and the, the small domiciles that they have there, the sleeping platforms are purposefully built underneath, uh, intramural burials. So there are small skeleton bundles directly under the sleeping platforms. And we know that they're the sleeping platforms. They could have buried these people anywhere. I think there's something intentional about sleeping next to the dead like that, that mm. th- there's this idea that you can contact these people in dreams.
2: Also, I mean, in the Hebrew Testament, you know, you've got Jacob's dream. You know, he sleeps on the stone and has this dream about, you know, angel. It's translated as angel, celestial beings mm-hmm. descending this ladder. And then the next morning, when he wakes up, he sets the stone up and says, This is the house of God. This is Bethel. This is where Bethlehem yeah. came from. <laughs> so yeah, Bethlehem's yeah. still there. So that, you know. Uh, this is the house of God, Beth El, which is literally what it means. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the, so the yeah. whole, be- the whole Bethlehem is based on that. You know, that dream. Ultimately, think about the implication, the historical implications of that yeah. dream.
1: <laughs> it's, yeah. un- it's literally unimaginable. I do think you know if you look at all religions, basically they have some sort of afterlife aspect to them, and I think that the after ideas about the afterlife were fueled by dreams, deep, like deeply fueled by dreaming and um and so i think personally think dreaming is the perhaps main inspiration for religion and afterlife beliefs in particular
2: and if you think about which you talk about in the book quite a lot uh, uh, the uh, the evolution of like consciousness and you know so at one point you know what the very early humanity were purely creatures of instinct you know, creatures mm. of instinct, and then became self-aware. So, you have this theory of like the consciousness and the unconscious sort of being disassociated, and then mm. and then now with 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 like psychotherapy and whatever, the, the two things are coming back together again. And and in dreaming, of course, that's where you know. That's the raw road into um, psychology.
1: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why we're in such a precarious situation now, because people are forgetting about dreams.
2: Mm. Yeah. yeah. I think
1: we need dreams. And and you look at the prevalence of things like, um, well, one... Cannabis is a massive um, REM suppressor for most people. It doesn't affect everyone in the same way, but it massively usually impacts REM sleeping people. Antidepressants that are given out to anyone going to the doctor saying they're like mildly unhappy can get put on antidepressants if they don't guard against it. So, uh, if you don't have dreams and you don't remember your dreams and, and device addiction is huge because um, light stimulates your um, pineal gland, it disrupts your circadian rhythm. So you don't have such good quality sleep. You have to make an effort to have good dreams. And a lot of people, if they don't have experiences in life of having good dreams, don't know what they're missing. So they don't uh, pursue it. That's why I really like working with children. because. Uh, you can get children really interested and excited about it. And quite often they still have good dreams until they start getting mobiles. I mean, I remember when my nephew who's 20 now uh, used to go and stay at my mum and dad's house and my mum and dad couldn't believe that he used to sneak his phone into his bedroom and would just be on it all night long. And so many children are doing this. They just have their phone in bed with them all night long. And it's kind of pinging and going off throughout the night and they're getting up and checking it constantly. And I think, you know, that is, that is something that is just going to be extraordinarily detrimental to the health of like a whole generation.
2: Yeah, I, think. It's, it's, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. It's difficult to know what what, what the effect of the, the, the sort of these technologies are, especially on the sort of developing brain. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's some positives as well. But yes, we have to be like anything. There's it, a toxic element.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah
2: you'll love me because i don't have any connection to the internet at all <laughs> and uh i don't have television so and and my phone so called is like you know it's just one up from a you know a plastic cup and a piece of string really yeah, that, yeah. That...
0: <laughs> yeah he's, he's certainly not a um a gadget man, are you? That's no, kind of... no, <laughs> <it> not. Into...
1: <laughs> I think, you know,
2: technology is a good servant, but it's a poor master. Yeah.
1: yeah. I just spent like 10 days in this little tiny village in Tuscany and it was just such a lot. Lu- you know, I think being offline is a luxury now. Mm. And it was a luxury to not look at my phone and not check emails. And it was amazing. I really enjoyed it. I think yeah. that this is going to be something that people monetize now as well <laughs> when it's just normal
0: and free. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed that. We I visited Damanhur recently. This, um, oh, amazing! Yeah. yeah, and they they have like a yeah. weird. I think I swear they block phones there. Like even in areas where there should be coverage, there wasn't. But we the whole day we were there, we didn't. Well, the mountains phones, right.
1: probably have a strong effect. Yeah, on... yeah,
0: yeah. It's an amazing place though. It's uh, but anyway, yeah. So. One Another thing that struck me in the book was the you, you talk about the divine feminine. Um, and I was wondering, could you talk to that a little bit? Because obviously the divine feminine comes into some more occult things as well. And, you know, um, yeah. so there's a crossover there and I'm quite interested in that.
1: Well, I'm just I'm going to do a talk on the 22nd of July, actually, about this, you know, w- Generally speaking, it was the female deities that were the guardians of death and dreaming in very ancient times. And then it kind of got taken over, um, I don't know, like to, to a degree, uh, in, in Egypt and in Greece, suddenly it was a sort of patriarchy. Like Apollo took over the oracles and Asclepius took over the dream healing. And actually, the sanctuary of Asclepius at Epidavros is the descendant of a much earlier hill shrine on the mountain behind the theatre there that was dedicated to a Mycena- Mycenaean goddess, which was a healing goddess. And so, this hill shrine looks a little bit like um, the peak sanctuaries in Crete, which are these healing sanctuaries that are often dedicated to goddesses and, and they are full of votives in the same way that the later sleep sanctuaries have all these votives of body parts for healing so um and then of course you have like the mysteries in greece as well Demeter and persephone you have this descending into the underworld you have anana's descent into the underworld as well so at some point it's taken over by men but this idea that uh, women were not just the creators of life, but they would also be there at the end of life as well. They were always acting as psychopomps, guiding people into the underworld. And I think it's a it's a reasonable a reasonable idea if you think about women are the ones ushering people into life, so therefore they would be there at the end. Also, childbirth was more fraught with dangers and risks then as well. Um, And lifespans, generally speaking, are shorter, not necessarily shorter, but quite often people would have violent deaths or die in their youth, a lot of um, uh, infanticide and child deaths and things like this as well. So women were very much like the guardians of life. And in ancient Anatolian magic, there's this idea that the magical symbols of women are the spindle and the mirror. And there's this idea that women or female deities are the ones that spool out a certain amount of thread that denotes how long your lifespan is. They're in charge of your fate. And, And a mirror can be used to kind of augment and change your life accordingly. And there are spells to make men impotent by capturing that image in a mirror and things like this.
2: Yeah. yeah yeah i mean i've been to stay away uh, from mirrors yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. i've been to uh a uh, monserrat where the, the we have the shrine of black oh, virgin oh me too i love monserrat. Yeah, yeah. yeah and there's a actually uh, at the back there's a little room where uh there's offerings votive offerings where people have prayed and uh you know showing uh, how that, that we've disappeared that's, <laughs> right, that's right uh showing what you know the what you know the um, the, the healing the healing all the miracles or yeah. whatever you want to call them
1: so that's uh, a really that's a super ancient idea this idea yeah, of taking the exactly. votive, you need to heal yeah yeah, yeah. And, and even now you have like saint lazarus uh, in brazil I, I just bought a big bag of wax votives from brazil you take your votive into a temple it's left in the inner sanctum ha- hanged up and it's kind of protected and um healed by the presence of the god because that sacred precinct is seen as being like the domain of the god and so that divine influence can affect your afflicted body part and then because obviously so many of these votives they were richly buried then as well and, and often they would be buried underneath the temple or sanctuary so that they are um sanctified when they're buried as well
2: yeah my uh funny enough my great great grandmother in the in the village she lived in and she couldn't read or write uh, she 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 was a person in the village who prepared you know looked after you when you were dead you know so she prepared and also she brought you into the world she actually she she, she you know she she went to the pregnant you know helped the people coming into the world you know what's the word i'm looking midwife at? midwife yeah. is the word I look at. she was a local midwife <laughs> and she also so she saw you coming in and she saw you going as well so yeah, yeah. yeah so that's an interesting perspective isn't it
0: yeah i think um when you talk about the magical mirrors there's some, there's some connection between that and the old women rituals aren't there is that right mm, yeah.
1: yeah so old women are the I guess like the chief diviners of ancient Anatolia, and they have this really powerful influence all over ancient Anatolian um, culture for a, for a long period of time. Even when the Hittites took over Hattiland, the Hittites were known as the God collectors or the land of a thousand gods because they just absorbed cultures and they were a sort of military patriarchal society. And they apparently didn't like the old women, they were always trying to get rid of them but their influence was so powerful that they had to have them in court and they still um, consulted them on important decisions as well. So the old women were the seers of ancient Anatolia. And I mean, in quite a lot of ancient texts, women are often described as the best dream interpreters. And in, uh, in the ancient Near East, in Sumerian and Babylonian texts, Interpreting dreams is described as untangling knots, which also relates back to this idea of women weaving and looming, and and um, having that symbol of the spindle as well. So, um, so the mirrors are a magical tool; they are a kind of elite grave good as well. I think some of the oldest mirrors ever discovered actually were discovered in Chatalhoyek, which is not not long after gobekli Tepe, a kind of a proto city settlement in southern anatolia and these are polished obsidian mirrors and so yeah how the magic took place in those there are um, some spells there were some rituals written down in later texts and there does seem to be some continuity in terms of um religious practice and symbols and um ideas about gods and goddesses and there's this idea in ancient Anatolia that dreams shorten your life so it's important to get rid of nightmares and so old women are often called in to get rid of nightmares
0: that's interesting and the obviously the obsidian mirror comes into more western esoteric practices mm-hmm. uh, wasn't yeah. Dee's mirror
2: uh, the most famous uh, scrying mirror is Dee's is obsidian mirror which we now know so the is actually Aztec Actually, yeah, it, it, that's incredible that uh, he's. You know, I know
1: look at that quite often in the British Museum, um, and it's one of the objects that's most often on loan as well, which yeah, I find quite. interesting Yeah, I've no <laughs> noticed
2: that it sort of follows me around because I'm, I'm going from mm-hmm. exhibition to exhibition, and there it is. And I've, I've yeah. said this before, but if you go into the British Museum, and there, there's like in the next gal- more or less next gallery, a couple of galleries off, is the Aztec. Um, collection yeah. and there's an obsidian mirror there and it's yeah, you and it's the same. It's essentially mm-hmm. you know, it's the same. I love yeah. the fact
0: that Dee's mirror is opposite Pazuzu as well. I've always liked that. Yeah, yeah. It's it? it was... Dee's mirror opposite Pazuzu. Yeah I there's like a little tiny bazoo statue oh directly God. opposite. Yeah. yeah.
2: But also yeah. with the with the whole process of scrying, you're you're you know, you're with the obsidian mirror or whatever you use speculum you're you're skimming the, the unconscious mind you, you know the, the, okay. it's the it's the it's most that you from my experience most of what you're seeing is is like the flotsam and jetsam of the unconscious mind the unconscious mind though is a is a deep ocean and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, you know there the, 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 there's lots of stuff that comes up from from that which is uh, far more deeper far more, which goes beyond
1: <laughs> Here as well of, um, in a lot of ancient dream interpretation of dreams existing in this kind of mirror realm. So I think mirrors can be seen as an expression of that as well. And if you think about, you know, I find it fascinating how material culture influences perception and consciousness and our ideas about reality. So before, um, you know, even with the invention of something like an obsidian mirror, people weren't seeing their reflection very often. They didn't really know exactly what they looked like. Mm -hmm. And so I think this would lead to less self-identification. You wouldn't necessarily identify yourself quite as much if you weren't constantly bombarded with your own image. And um, you look at something like uh, the glass delusion, which uh, King Charles of France, the mad or the beloved king, depending on your, you know, what what option you like the best. But he was diagnosed with this glass delusion when glass was introduced as a regular kind of building material. And he started to associate with the glass and started to think that he would shatter if anyone pushed him. So he had to wear like special padded outfits to stop him feeling like he was going to shatter at any given moment. So I think materials and the objects in, especially in terms of Ancient cultures, where you think creating and crafting an object took an extraordinary amount of time and skill, and no single decision on that object would ever have been an accident or just you know a Chinese workshop misprint or you know mass produced item, they're like so explicitly purposeful in every single aspect, um, and so the symbolic languages that are used across all of those cultures can be read like the symbols can be read in an object and you can get some sense and idea from it.
0: Yeah it's definitely so in the book you met right at the beginning I think actually you mentioned the term cosmic consciousness and I've had this mm. I've had conversations with people everyone I speak to seems to have a different definition of what cosmic consciousness means but I'd be quite interested to hear your your definition of it?
1: I guess I would identify as a pantheist. You know, I think that we are part of a continuum of consciousness and we're kind of identifying as individuals because that's the nature of every aspect of this continuum of consciousness. Um, Yeah, I think that's it really. It's kind of really simple, isn't it? <laughs> it's just like we're obviously yeah. all part of one planet and then that planet is obviously all part of a solar system and that solar system is part of a galaxy and that galaxy is part of the universe and we're all part of that and i think that's why removing our view of the night sky starts to make us think we are something that we're not we're like self-contained but we're not we're like completely reliant upon the sun and you know i mean i love that quote can't remember where it's from you know when um the Spanish rock up in South America and, and say, you know, you're pagans or you're evil for worshipping the sun. And they say, well, we can see the sun at least. The sun's real. So I think we should go back to being solar worshippers and earth worshippers. It makes so much more sense. And it's actually completely legitimate. It, we can see it, it's everywhere. It's obviously intelligent. And, um, We'd all feel so much happier if we did that as well. I think,
2: and I think it. I think it's there. at least in some place, like Saint Francis Aww. of Assisi had a, a prayer. Yeah. To, you know, brother, son, and sister, moon, and you know, so it's, it's there. That rever- the reverence that, for the, uh, the the sense of awe that you get from the, 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 the celestial, Con- even contemplating it. You said before about people even being sort of afraid of it, but I think we've lost that sense of awe, awe awfulness yeah you know not yeah people use the word oh god i had a curry last night it was awful well that's not what mean. <laughs> it's not what it really means it means a sense of awe you know feeling overwhelmed yeah. like almost like a kind of uh sort of holy dread but in a in a very kind yeah. of impressive positive
1: well i was from. just reading actually you know william shatner's statement after traveling into space it's absolutely beautiful it's like he said he felt he realized he thought he was going to be inspired to kind of conquer other planets and, and be excited about space ex, ex, um, exploration. He said all he felt was this like intense sense of dread of the immensity of death of everywhere other than our planet, which is like this beautiful, harmonious, gorgeous gem of life in a sea of nothingness and i think that's really beautiful and i think a lot more of us could feel like that if we saw the stars properly but we just don't i mean it's Mm. it's a massive it's massively affected our perception of self and the rest of the cosmos and our relationship to it because we it is there but we can't see it
2: Mm. yeah i mean one of the most important photographs that ever taken was the the picture of the earth wasn't it? You yeah, know, the, the, the yeah. little blue dots. That you know when yeah. that is that that's uh, stuck in all our you know made a huge uh, impact. In that being able to see that for the first time, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, I mean, of course, the astronauts even more so because they they were in actuality. But even the photograph. Well, I had
1: dream once that I was standing on the moon, and um, you know this overview effect that astronauts get. And this dream was lucid. It was really powerful. It was about twenty years ago now. But I remember seeing the Earth turning on its axis and after that, for about two weeks afterwards, I could never see the sunrise in the same way because I was just Mm. so conscious of the fact that I was on a planet moving rather than the sun was rising up over some immovable Mm. edge of the planet. And it was amazing. And I got this real sense of what it was like to go into space.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something very deep in your sort of philosophical perspective, you know, Mm -hmm. this uh the, the realization that dreams our dream life can actually change us
1: sorry it's car backfiring did you
0: yeah. hear that yeah i thought <laughs> <laughs> something smash through the wall or something <laughs>
1: yeah I can, you
2: know our dreams can change us you know they we can what? have incredible Ice dreams that are really profoundly significant i've had dreams which have changed my life and i've, I've had dreams that are still with me you know
1: yeah, me know, too, you know.
2: yeah. And also you can learn things from dreams, you know, yeah. Um, I had one very vivid dream I had a very, very long time ago was, um, well, basically I saw God, <laughs> but God, God was this and, and like super sun. It wasn't yellow, it was white um And it sort of was at the centre of the universe, and it was, it wasn't a personified like your pantheism idea. It was towards mm. that, and um, and then as uh, it was a very uh, vivid dream, incredibly vivid, you know, and. uh there were figures coming out of it, and they—they uh, they, as they grew bigger, they—I recognised them as gods they were gods from different pantheons. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing Ganesh and stuff. But uh, then, uh, then there was the other side, the dark side, and there was all the 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 evil personifications coming out. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that like uh, really stuck with me is that uh, this this immense sun had like. Um, not just worlds coming out of it. It had um, had whole universes emerging out of it, and these these universes emerged out of it, and then they, they then they shrunk back down and they they were like absorbed back into the thing. But the mass remained the same. The mass was always the same. And uh, what came out, came out of it a bit like a huge piece of clay. If you had like a pound of clay, and then you could took figures out of it and made them, and then stuck them back in again the 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 the, the amanticlates the same so there's that deeper connection and i and that yeah. was something i which is still with me and, and which i which came to me for a, just a dream you know mm. you know uh,
1: well, I, I wonder how many more celestial and cosmic dreams would have if we could see the stars every night as well you know yeah, i yeah. mean they yeah. are like undeniably awe inspiring and yet we're cut off from them and i think it's really tragic
0: yeah yeah do you want to talk about um one thing that's obviously dreams factor into um the kind of magic that we tend to cover more i suppose on the show which is you know mm-hmm. like western esotericism and also, also, also
2: can i say you know in in like um like the golden dawn tradition and so on, the visualization is so much part of it and the part of the brain you visualize with is the part you dream with which you imagine mm-hmm. so you know if you're visualizing I don't know, a pentagram or whatever, or figure, an archetypal or figure. You're you're the same part of your brain that you dream with, you you're 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 using you're, it's been activated. Mm-hmm. You know, you're treading you're I, treading the same like, you know, sacred yeah, ground definitely. on the unconscious.
1: I think that's why children often have such good dream lives is because they spend so much time in imaginative play and they're always imagining things. And part of I do think there's a kind of um learned uh a fantasia these days as well where people are using devices, they're not using their sort of imaginal capabilities, they're not reading novels. All these kind of things really help you to visually conjure up imagery. And yeah. if conjuring up visual imagery is not strong for you, yeah. then it's harder for you to remember your dreams. And yeah. harder you for you to really have um deep, complex, strikingly visual dreams as well, actually.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. I'm- I know I know um Crowley was obsessed with like writing a dream diary and that kind of thing and the dream sort of dream practices Uh, do you uh, did you research any kind of more modern western esoteric kind of practices or
1: not so much I've read a lot of that kind of stuff when I was younger and was quite into that kind of stuff and then what I've got really excited about is going back to the most ancient things I don't know there seems to be like a sort of original purity or something about looking into ancient Anatolian dream culture, for example, because you still see all the same themes mm. in their essence, like the essence is just consistent. It's consistently about um, the dream realm being the same place where dead people go and where the gods dwell mm. um, consistently it's about somehow changing your reality by changing your dreamscape. Mm. Um, and. It's also consistently about predicting predicting the future. If you look into ancient dream interpretation texts, they're entirely concerned with predicting the future. It's never about revealing the personality of the dreamer. It's this view. And if you look at the kind of strong oracular tradition throughout um, throughout the West, throughout Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Greece, like divination is just everywhere, all the time. It's like ever present. So there's this concept there of course that you can predict the future easily and reliably especially with dreams dreams is always seen as being like one of the best forms of divination
2: yeah i mean the babylonians you know particularly were known weren't they for the they had a, that that dream, those dream that dream culture and uh yeah you know they record a, you know a, a you know a, a professional dream interpreters and uh, they had like uh uh, like a list of, of, of a certain types of dream like funny enough mm. uh, one of them is um, uh, the dream of being naked in public which is incredible because we're still having it now in
1: those little dreams that are kind of dream memes, I call them, you know, like this idea that there are these persistent ideas and motifs in dreaming and teeth falling out is something that you see in ancient dream interpretation texts. But also in, um, I think in Egypt, a common one was your face turning into a leopard. But most ancient dream interpretations, especially in Mesopotamia and Egypt, are about wordplay and punning, which I find amazing because I think this, this reveals how much dreaming is dependent upon language. Because if you, the the ancient Egyptian language system and um, it relies upon wordplay, punning, and homophones, like nearly all interpretations are based upon some sort of linguistic uh, solution.
2: Yeah. When I when I read Freud, I have Freudian dreams. When I read Jung, I have mm-hmm. Jungian dreams. Yeah, so yeah. So it's, yeah. it's interesting that I'm having the dreams at all because there's like the unconscious is like a like a like a thing under a stone. It's being prodded and it sort of comes out and sort of does something.
1: Well, when I started to learn hieroglyphs, um, I started to have hieroglyphs in my dreams. And it's quite interesting learning hieroglyphs because the way you learn them and the way you think about them, it engages more brain regions or more kinds of ways of thinking than looking at ordinary language. Because that pictorial, you make all these associations, you can't help but make associations. And so it's very, um compatible with the way dreams work because dreams work they're all association based so learning hieroglyphs is an amazing way to change your dreams into something yeah, yeah. sort of and more different you're
2: sort of internalizing them well the western as a tradition you know that there's that there's the kapala and there's, there's a whole load of stuff you know that which is internalized in those in those disciplines as well isn't it so yeah, yeah it's the same process essentially
0: so dreaming as a creative source has always been something that's really interested me. Obviously Lynch, where is it? There, there. I can't, it's back to front. There we go. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Lynch is my favorite director. And I think the thing that really strikes me about Lynch is, is this kind of dream logic that he, I think he calls, well, it's been called dream logic in his films, Mm -hmm. but you really genuinely feel with his films that you are witnessing somebody else's you know dream essentially you know In yeah. in, in, in i know that's like almost a cliche when you talk about film um but with him it, it genuinely means that i you know I, I can think of hundreds of scenes in his films where i think oh god yeah he's he's recreating that kind of yeah. the tone and the kind of movement and all the all the sort yeah. of strange yeah. not quite rightness of a dream you know right mm. yeah I mean,
1: the kind of dark interiors even the really mm. simple things like dark interiors like When I was a kid, Twin Peaks just blew my mind. Like I loved Twin Peaks so much.
0: Yeah, it's huge.
1: And um, you know, I was obsessed with it. And it was the one of the first things I ever saw that felt like actually watching a dream. In parts, in the dream scenes. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Jodorowsky, to me, is the director that his films look most like dreams Mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, Santa Sangre. I do think think, his idea of psycho magic. I think it works if. If you consider just watching Holy Mountain, if you just watch Holy Mountain before you go to bed, Mm -hmm. it's brilliant. It works because it has all these super graphic archetypal images. And so it's like food for your consciousness. You then go to sleep and all of these things emerge yeah. and and sort of recalibrate in your yeah. own mind and this an amazing thing to do it's basically you know the whole film is a trip through the major arcana isn't it and so yeah. when you sleep on it when you watch it just before you go to sleep that helps to generate your own quest through the major arcana it's a really great film for that
2: oh totally it's, it's up there in, the, in my top 10. It's, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a unique film Mm-hmm. actually you, you, yeah. it's one of those films you, you can't really place exactly where it is and it yeah. lo- lo- love it or love it it makes it you it will be with you it will be with yeah. you isn't it? it's not it's 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 uncompromising
1: well, composition mm. the the kind of i don't know the incredible composition and the colors they just sear into your consciousness don't they it's like yeah. everything is like a painting it's so beautiful mm. So
0: one thing I've I've always wanted to talk to you about um uh, cuz I've heard you in another interview talk about how you don't like this idea of technology being used for dreams or to induce dreams. I think I, I think maybe it was actually in a conversation but you said you weren't keen on the idea of like dream machines and
1: Vision. I don't know. I do think that virtual reality could potentially be really good for dreams. Mm. Insofar as, you know, there is evidence to suggest that gamers, especially those using VR, have more lucid dreams. And I think it's part of the part of it is about how you interact with that technology. So the way we're interacting now with like flat screens, I think that's really detrimental to encouraging that kind of dream perception because the dream way of looking at the world is through a three dimensional space. You're kind of constantly moving forward. So that's much more sympathetic to the way that you see the world in VR. Mm. And I remember doing VR for the first time and I had a lucid dream that night. And I know that the lucid dream was inspired by this VR experience where I was like under the ocean looking at all these jellyfish passing by and stuff. So I think virtual reality is potentially a really useful dream um, entrainment tool. I think that I think that the kind of technology we're using now with scrolling is really bad because scrolling is um, the antithesis of the way that you look into dream space and because people are spending so much time scrolling that in training their eyes to look at the world in this sort of scrolling rapid up and down way. And I was looking into this and thinking, you know, Looking at stuff rapidly and moving your eyes up and down quickly is uh, eye movement associated with trauma. And if you do EMDR therapy, you have to kind of make sweeping left to right eye movements slowly. And this is much more about sort of scanning a depth of field and much more like the dreaming experience. And so I think just the way that we interact with scrolling and social media is this accidental weird trauma that we're we're developing anxiety as a result of over time just constantly practicing this kind of trauma informed panicky eye movement that's totally unnatural Mm. so i think that anything that encourages us to explore a depth of field visually just in a really sort of practical sense because it's about the way that you're spending most of your time looking at the world and if you are mostly looking at a screen you're looking at it in a really unnatural, um, shallow, flat surface type of way. It's not at all like the way you would experience dreaming. So, you know, a digital detox is always one of the best things to get back into dreaming, I think.
0: Um, one of the technologies I've become really interested in, which is very much dream related, is um, have you heard of Robert Munro before? Um, yeah. The, the Gateway Experience. What are your Hemisphere. Hemi-sync, yeah, but but um, more, more so the the gateway experience, which is uh, a is their initial program that they they you know they released. What are your thoughts on that style of dream? Because that's kind of dream tech. Yeah, the
1: binaural the binaural beats
0: type of stuff. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I haven't used that very much. I'm like really sensitive to sound during sleep. Like I don't mm. like it. I like to have silence and. So, I've never been very excited to use any of these hemi sync things. I might use it in meditation, but um, I haven't used it for sleeping. I find sound really distracting when I'm sleeping, although I'm really interested in um, how you can change dreams by providing a sign of soundscape. Like, I think. Luke Jerram, there's a few um, musicians that have done these experiments where they've toured galleries around the world. And there's, I think Luke Jerram's one was called the dream director, where he had people sleeping in pods overnight and then was playing soundscapes that had various kind of field recordings of different sorts of locations. And the idea is that when people slept in there, they'd be taken to these like different locations in their dreams. But I'm also interested in how Um, we might use olfaction like the sense of smell to influence dream content as well because dreams are so related to memory and emotion i'm doing some experiments to see if when people are sleeping certain smells are introduced to the environment that they will then dream of the memory that they associate with this particular smell so for example if you smell the perfume of a loved one that that person would then appear in your dream i think i think it seems promising that this would be um effective
0: Mm, yeah it's um I completely lost my uh, train of thought there oh yeah yeah so yeah yeah it's definitely interesting i think i've been i'm the opposite i can't sleep unless i have some sort of white noise or noise it's really i've um i have quite intense dreams but um they tend to be like i have to have a fan on so there's something that kind of i think it's because i have adhd so it kind of like does something to my brain that lets it sleep sort of thing um, a lot deeper but one thing is with dreams how do you feel about dreams I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but dreams kind of come in true. I and mean, Mark, yeah. Mark has a story. Got,
2: yeah. <laughs> I'm sort of obliged. It's a weird, it's a th- weird thing. It's it's very important. It's a life changing experience for me. This this dream, and I don't find it easy to talk about it, <laughs> which mm. is which is interesting, but because it's so important. Um, uh, so I I had a dream you know, part of the, the kind of spiritual tradition or magical tradition I follow is is you, you need to keep a dream diary. So at some point I was doing that. I had incredible dreams. I got to the point where I was, rec- you know, every morning I had, you know, I was recording mm-hmm. dreams because if you get into a habit, your, your mind remembers it better.
1: Yeah, it's what happens. A, it's yeah, it's a me. very
2: sort of common thing. So I had this dream which was a vivid dream, but it wasn't particularly anything other than that. And uh, where, I was at, where I was living, I was standing at, uh, I was standing in a very specific place in the town I lived in, and it was uh, just to go into the details. It was inside a shopping centre. On the right-hand side uh, was a stairwell and lifts, and there was a big window which looked out to the Salvation Army uh, building, I believe. And then there was a big window at the front which looked out like at the bus stop because that's what, that's what I was sort of going to. Mm. And in my dream, in my dream, uh, I suddenly had this very intense sense of being watched. Uh, another weird thing about it, the shopping centre in my dream was completely empty, which I've never experienced like that. And mm. um, so that, that was a bit of the uncanny Thing about it but there's a lot more to come anyways I had this very intense sense of being watched um then uh at the same time um because i was familiar with it uh the, the there's a in the the king of solomon the king mathes edition there's a, a the fourth pa- pentacle of venus uh flashed up it flashed up in front of me in in brilliant emerald green uh, colors, they, they, the power, they, the, uh, virtue of the, the, you know, the magical influence of it is supposed to be to bring a person to you in an instant. Mm. Um, then I turned around and there was somebody I knew it was very significant to me, uh, very significant to me and who I thought I wouldn't see ever again. And they were standing uh, sort of coming towards me on the right hand side and the left hand side, there were two people I'd never seen before in my life. Uh, the one on the right hand side was quite short and had a round face, short, dark curly hair and um, sort of very prominent eyebrows and a leather jacket which was open with a kind of checkered top. And the other one was much taller and thinner. And the, the, bloke, the, the bloke I knew, the person in the middle, um, he was just wearing his normal things and he, he was quite a tall chap anyways. And then, uh, so, and then they sort of come towards me. Right at the end of the dream, I sort of fly up into the air, fly up into the air like Peter Pan. Anyways, it was just a dream very simple i've gone into detail there because it's important and um uh then exactly 11 days later i happened to be in that area um i completely forgot the dream because i've had all these other dreams it, you know it was just a dream it was yeah you know. and um and then suddenly i i felt somebody watching me intensely i turn around and i'm standing in exactly the same place I'm turn around. There's there's the stairwell. There's the the, the place where the the, uh, the the bus is coming and so on. And there they were. So and there was this person with the two people I've never seen before in my life. Well, I had in a dream. And there they were <laughs> yeah. in real life. And that uh, what I didn't see. I didn't see. I didn't have an impression of that. That the fourth pentacle of the king of Solomon. Ooh that wasn't there and and actually i didn't fly up in the air <sighs> afterwards so yeah. but uh, uh, but um that dream that moment is it, always going to be with me i mean i i took the bus ride home which i've done hundreds of times and i can still remember it i can still remember the bus stopping at the traffic lights which i've done thousands of times you know with this sense of awe because I can't, yeah. I, I can't dismiss the dream. I, I have no conventional oh. explanation for it. And at the same time, uh, you know, I can't, uh, I'm all conscience, I, I can't make sense of it. You know, it, and also I find it very irritating because I don't believe you can see into the future. Because, <laughs> you know, because in some no. ways that means, that means yeah. it's already happened. And so it was like very annoying as well. But also, I also had this sense of awe. You know, holy dread, which we don't have. I mean, that sounds like a negative thing, but it's not. We don't have the language. We've lost that. We've lost that. And of course, as soon as I got home, I flew upstairs, got my diary out and read, read my account. And my account was exact in every detail. You know mm. so i've got that so people have said to me oh it's just a coincidence well if it's a coincidence it's a coincidence that breaks all the rules of coincidence <laughs> you know and if also if it was the other way around if i had that experience of standing there and and being felt watched and blah blah and they came over and then i dreamt about it nobody would be saying oh there's no connection there's a coincidence but causality has been turned on its head and uh, mm-hmm. you know and that's that 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 changed my life you know, because I was shown that the unconscious there's—it's not just in your head. There's an objective yeah, reality, and right. there's information I did not have access to before. You know, mm. I had no—you know, there's two people who I didn't even know exist, and then—and then it's confirmed that you know they're in, even down to the point that one's on the right, one's on the left. You know, how can that work? How can that work? How can ten—you know—ten days later, if, I, if we're walking around, is it—is it, is it all then set out? You know. So I mean, his theories about you know, it, you know, Nietzsche's idea of the eternal return. And funny enough, he he had a dream. He had a dream when he was very young of his um, brother dying, and the next day his brother actually died. You know, mm. and uh, so I, I think that led into his theories later in life. But even then, I I don't know. I can't I can't account for it. But it showed me the universe is are far more. If it's not even stranger than we imagine. It's stranger than we can imagine. You know, yeah. and the unconscious mind is the, the 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 routine, and in the in the sort of in my own you know magical tradition, that's what you're making. You know, all that visualization and stuff, and that, and keeping the dream diary, that's all about making friends with the unconscious mind. It becomes you know, you
1: know, the dream realm to me is a realm in which you can practice magic powerfully yeah, exactly. because yeah, yeah, you yeah. are um, you know when you're lucid in particular you recognize that your thoughts and feelings manifest material content in that dream realm immediately and Mm. i think the same is true of ordinary waking reality only the processes are much more subtle Mm. and slight they take a much longer time to manifest but um i do think dreams are the perfect space to practice magical thinking and manifestation
2: i mean i I went through uh, i did a quite intense sort of series of workings with uh, the assumption of god forms there's a bit where it's like uh, you you um sort of meditate basically and and um visualize the form of the god over you, uh, you know? mm. uh, I, and i was working with uh, the god foth and as and uh, at night because it was over, over an extended period as i was Drifting into sleep, I could feel my face turning. I'm not not claiming, by the way, I was t- physically turning into a bird, <laughs> but uh, I could feel I could feel my become my face becoming the beak of Thoth as I was. I'm not making any conscious uh, choice about it. Not, it no, no, <laughs> no, I, it had been imprinted so much into my power. unconscious mind as I drifted in. I I um, was t- I was becoming this this thing. Yeah. I think
1: this power we have is hugely underestimated and. You know it's not quite imagination but it is imaginal somehow it's like a power Mm. that you know from imagination comes real things so the more powerful your imagination the more power Mm. you have to create real things i think so uh you know i find kids inspirational because kids are able to live in their imaginal realms and kind of hold the two things simultaneously so live in reality and yet have these vivid experiences of playing and exploring an imaginal realm i think we need to introduce a bit more of that perhaps through magical practice in for adult life because otherwise life's pretty boring you know if you're not if people are just kind of really all they care about is that job and buy and stuff what's the point you know i think that I think that um, the imagination and imaginal experiences and these altered states are there for a reason. They're there to make us feel sort of less alone in the universe and more part of the continuum.
2: Yeah, yeah, I I, I totally, yeah. I mean, I, I think we lost that that contact with what, call it what you will, or the, 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 you know, there's the other side of the veil and we have to make a kind of, have that, a meaningful relationship there. I think lots of, forms of mental illness and so on come from from mm-hmm. that lack you know that that alienation it's a two-edged sword though because it can go the other way i mean absolutely i'm always
1: very careful in workshops because i'm very yeah. well aware of that and um you know i've got friends that have got mental health issues and i've seen what they go through and psychosis and mm. all these kinds of things so i think it is something that you've got to be mindful of but then that's why it's useful to have these healthy frameworks whereby these experiences can be kind of held and recognized as being imaginal without being written off
2: yeah totally i mean i work in the mental health profession and, and I'm, it's incredibly important to me and it's an enormous privilege the work i do and um experiences that people share with me and uh, you know that and you can i've learned you learn so much all the time you know, yeah. but I'm I'm aware that it, it, you know for vulnerable people or certain people with certain conditions, um, you know that you can trigger their psychosis and they'll be swept away by it. So it is a very much, you know, a, a two-edged sword. But it's interesting. I mean, the the, the whole um, world of mental health, of professional mental health, has gone from being a very biomedical view as a place for that, but also of, of in, but it's far more holistic. You know it's mm. about what you do in the world making meaningful uh, relationships and um, socializing it, 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 often it's very simple everyday things that top up our well-being but um mm. uh, but uh, you know for, for some people where mental health is a, a bigger part of their life it can get in the way it gets in the way of their lives mm. you know well there's about... so
1: many extra stressing factors these days and i think mm, stress yeah. plays a massive part in that and where people don't feel like they're part of a community or they don't feel safe yeah. then th- those kind of some of these some of these forms can be used as a form of escapism and then you can end up with psychotic delusions and all sorts of things happening i think feeling safe feeling secure and feeling part of a community and and looked out for and cared for is massively important yeah yeah totally
0: so um obviously you have your book out now um and people can buy this and it's been out for a a while now isn't it i think like Mm -hmm. a few months um But what else do you uh, plan on doing? I mean, I know in the past you ran the Explorers Club. I don't know. Are you still running the Explorers Club or?
1: Um, I haven't done any Explorers Clubs uh, in person for a while. I did do uh, an Explorers Egyptology night um, quite recently. Uh, But at the moment, I'm working mostly on putting together this symposium in Athens at the end of October. So. Mm That's really exciting. And then I've got two retreats um, at the sanctuary of uh, Asclepius Epidavros as well. So we're staying in a villa on the edge of the actual sanctuary and right. visiting the sanctuary and, and going on some little trips around there as well. There's this amazing sunken city. The ancient city of Epidavros is just on the coastline there and you can just swim over it. It's literally just swimmable from the shore i'm not i'm a bit of a pathetic swimmer because i nearly drowned in brighton once and so i don't like going out of my depth very much but um yeah you can just swim off the shore and be over it's only like about a meter and a half under the surface of the water it's amazing Mm -hmm. um so yeah i mean i i love greece my my dream now would be to um study cycladic frying pans and live on a greek island (laughs) i'd love that
0: okay so when you're um not dreaming about uh, frame pans where can people where can people find you online
1: um so my website's the mysteries.org and actually i've just updated it so i've got pretty much everything up on there now i think and then i'm actually in london uh next thursday for a book event at watkins mm-hmm. um i think that starts at 5:30 till 6:30 so yeah and then i've got some online talks scheduled as well i'm doing one about um dream goddesses so goddesses that are associated with dreaming rituals and um death and regeneration
0: excellent well thanks so much for coming back on the show and i really appreciate uh giving some more of your time
2: and is there a book is there a book in the pipeline a new book? Because I, I got a um, strong impression. Not
1: that... yet. Not but yet. Yeah, I mean, I'm pushing you know, it. Talking, about, talking about the stresses of ordinary life, I live in Hastings and Hastings has gone through this ridiculous period of gentrification. So my rent has like tripled since I've moved here. So, um, you know, what I need is some sort of regular gig whereby rent and the ordinary sort of demands of life are met and then i might write a book
0: yeah
2: I mean, I got, <laughs> like i said i got when i when i was reading the book i got got strong sense there was a lot more to be said and uh, mm. and i mean that is a massive compliment total compliment you know so and uh, that, that meat on the bone you know there's more there definitely.
1: yeah yeah i mean i've i was saying to you earlier i've learned a lot more since i wrote it as well so it would be pretty good i think to write another book
0: Okay, we're back. That was that was fun. Sarah James is always an interesting person. Whenever I encounter her online, she has some interesting takes on things and she's clearly, clearly very well researched on the topic of dreams, especially, you know, sort of esoteric dream topics and dream therapy and dream rituals so yeah i definitely recommend picking up her book uh, there's some interesting stuff in there. like she we didn't mention it in the interview but she she has uh kind of guided meditations and you go onto the website there's a website link in the book and you go there and she'll she she reads these kind of quite you know quite powerful uh, guided meditations so if you're interested in that kind of thing go check it out i don't know the link it's it's a custom one for the book so you have to get the book so we're back next week um, we might start releasing double episodes so we might be doubling up for a while because i vote like i said i've overbooked the show <laughs> um but so, you know it's we've been away for a while so we've got you know some catching up to do we'll be back next week i think the idea is to release on fridays now friday mornings friday afternoon if you're in america it'll be like probably Thursday night still but yeah that's the plan and then if I do two episodes in a week I'll probably release one on Tuesday and one on Friday I think that's the plan moving forward we're also looking into doing some Patreon style content where you you know give us some money and we start to record custom shows for that sort of Patreon exclusives like early access to shows and we're also working on another massive project but I'm not ready to reveal that yet. Um, that's going to involve you guys to an extent. And it's it's quite ambitious, but we are ready to do that. And um, that's all I can say. Anyway, I hope I, you've managed to sit through me droning on. Um, I will see you guys next week. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SittingNow, Instagram at SittingNow, Facebook at SittingNow, and of course, YouTube at SittingNow. We'll be back soon. Looking forward to it.